It truly is a joy to be here this morning, so thank you so much for coming and uh, hearing um, God's Word this morning. Uh, just to give you a little peek behind the curtain, uh, I've known that I would be teaching this series for over a year now, actually, um, and originally I was planned to teach back in March of this year, and uh, <laughs> uh, the plans changed a little bit. But anyway, so I'm really excited to finally be teaching in front of you and, and sharing um, this lesson with you. So, um, God decided to, to delay this series for um, over six months now until today. And, uh, and His sovereignty is actually what we're going to be talking about over the next three lessons. Uh, the sovereignty of God, um, specifically in suffering. So, the sovereignty of God is a, an enormous topic, and we're just going to be looking at how it applies to our suffering um, on a day-to-day basis. I'm not sure if you've heard this, but the uh, problem of evil has been called the Achilles heel of Christianity. Have you heard that before? If God is all-powerful, if he's all-sovereign, how can evil exist? And uh, the um, skeptics and atheists would tell you that, well, God can either be all-powerful or he can be all-good, but he can't be both. They would say, um, if he is truly all-powerful, then he can't be good because there's so much suffering and evil that we see in the world. And if he is loving, then he's not all-powerful because he's not stopping um, the tremendous amount of suffering that, that we see in the world. Uh, so my goal in this Sunday school class is to, is to completely avoid all of that philosophical um, apologetic discussion, and, and instead, my purpose is more pastoral. So, um, you know, we, Jesse and I have been here for six years now, and I know that even in this room, which is just such a subset of the whole body of Calvary, um, there has been a tremendous amount of suffering, even in this room, just in the, over the last six years, um, whether it be the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, infertility, miscarriage. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just amazing how much suffering has happened just in this room, uh, not to mention the wider body of Calvary. So uh, my purpose is not to necessarily defend the existence of God and why suffering exists, but um, to, to stir us up to a renewed confidence in the fact that God is sovereign, even over suffering, and the fact that he's good, even in suffering. Um, so, um, there's, this will be a three-week series, and they'll become progressively practical. So, we'll start today very theological, very Bible-centered, very doctrinal, and uh, unapologetically so. And then it'll increase and become more practical throughout the weeks. So, today, we're just going to look at the question of, is God sovereign over suffering? Uh, and we'll also answer the question... What difference does that make in our day-to-day life that God is sovereign? The second week when we come back, uh, we will look at what purposes is God accomplishing in our suffering. And then the third week is the most, will be the most practical of all. And we'll look at people in the Bible and how they suffered through um, trials and what instructions and how should we respond to God's suffering. And you'll see that at the top of your outline, the three weeks um, so, uh, finally, just one, one note before we begin. Uh, this doctrine of God's sovereignty is, is very weighty and very massive, and it's a very strong medicine for those who are suffering, but it seems like it's best applied as preventative medicine before the day of calamity comes, rather than a first aid kit on the day of your suffering. And so... Um, that's really the purpose of this class is to prepare you for the day of suffering. And um, I understand that there may be someone in here right now who is going through a, a trial right now. Um, and if that's you, I, I have been <laughs> praying for you and, and asking that God would give you patience and grace as we go through this series because it, it may sound harsh uh, because there's a different way to approach the sovereignty of God with someone who is in the midst of, of deep suffering rather than beforehand. And so that's the purpose of this class. Um, So would you pray with me before we begin? 
Father, we do thank you for your sovereignty in bringing us here together. I thank you for everyone you've brought here to hear this message, to hear your word opened up. And uh, Father, would you help us to see your sovereignty and help us to apply it? And would you help us to trust you more? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first we're going to start with a definition of God's sovereignty. So what does the word sovereign mean? Uh, well, it's not a completely unknown word in, even in, secular, in the secular world. You know, you hear about a sovereign nation or a sovereign ruler. And the idea is, the definition of the word just means supreme ruler. That's just the definition of the word, supreme ruler. And uh, even that definition has issues applying it in the world because you and I know that although the uh, ruler of Azerbaijan may be a sovereign ruler, um, the true definition of the word doesn't apply to anyone on earth as being sovereign. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.15, you may want to write this reference down. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.15 says that God is the blessed and only sovereign, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So in other words, we know from the Bible that there's actually only one sovereign person, though he has given delegated authority to rulers of the earth. There's really only one sovereign person. So that's the definition of the word sovereign, supreme ruler above all. Okay, there's only one that fits that definition. Now the definition of the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a little bit different and, requi- and requires us to, to slice it a little bit thinner um, because I think almost all evangelicals would agree that God is sovereign. Uh, to deny that God is sovereign or as the supreme ruler is to deny that God is God. And so I don't think any evangelical would deny that God is the supreme ruler. But what does it mean? What does the doctrine of God's sovereignty mean? And this definition is really helpful from, from John Piper. Listen to this definition. God's sovereignty is not merely the fact that God has the power and the right to govern all things, but that he actually does govern all things for his holy and wise purposes. Okay, so let me read that again. God's sovereignty is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he actually does govern all things. So do you see the difference between those two definitions? Um, It can be confusing. You'll hear people use the word that God is sovereign, uh, but they don't mean that he actually governs all things. It's the difference between is God a passive ruler or is he an active ruler? Is he a supreme ruler sitting on his throne who just kind of lets events happen and intervenes occasionally? Or is he an active ruler sitting on his throne, actively governing all things? So you, when you hear someone say the word of God, that God is sovereign, you need to ask yourself, what is he, he or she saying about God, that he is actively governing or passively governing? Um, so, but the question is, what does the Bible teach about God? Uh, is he actively governing all things, or is he passively governing all things? Uh, so, the first point that, we, that we're going to spend most of the time talking about is that God's sovereignty is absolute, and we will turn to Isaiah 46. So, if you could go to Isaiah chapter 46, we'll start there and look at uh, the definition of God's sovereignty from God himself. Isaiah 46, 8, we'll start in verse 8, and we'll go to verse 12, or, uh, verse 11. And just, just for context, this is God speaking here. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Uh, So here we have just one of the most amazing 
definitions of God's sovereignty. And what makes it um, so shocking is that it's from the mouth of God himself. I just want to walk through it and kind of open it up for you a little bit. Starting in verse 9, God declares the uniqueness of himself. He says that I am God and there is no other God. There's no one like me. And then he provides the litmus test. So what does it mean that God is the only God and there's no one like him? The litmus test is in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Okay? So the litmus test for being God is that he can declare all events in their complete accuracy before they happen. Specifically, he's saying that he stood at the beginning of time and declared what would happen at the end of time, and by application, every single event in between. And so if you can do that, then you qualify as being God. And that's why there's only one of those who can do that. There's only one God. Um, it reminds me of, uh, do you remember Psalm 139, 16, where David says to God, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Okay? So at a bare minimum, that's talking about the omniscience of God, that he knows all things. But that still doesn't quite answer our question. Is God actively governing all things, or is he passively governing? Does he just see the future, and then he writes down what's going to happen in the future? Um, well, just keep reading, if you would. In verse 10, he says, My counsel shall stand... And I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay, do you notice the, the uh, authority and the power of God, how he works and accomplishes everything that he purposes? And so, um, this isn't necessarily to deny secondary causes. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose. So he's taking primary authority for every, every, all of his purposes in bringing them to pass. Uh, though he uses secondary causes, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it's clear that God doesn't just know the future, but that he accomplishes his purposes. And if you look in verse 11, he says, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. So he has made a plan, and he will bring that plan about in time. So the question, the question we need to ask that's not necessarily answered from here is how many things does God plan? How many things does he purpose? Because it's clear in verse, 11, or verse 10 that he says he accomplishes his purpose. But the question is how many things does God purpose? You know, this is specifically talking about Cyrus and some of his larger plans of moving nations um, but what about smaller things? Is God, does God have a purpose for smaller things, or is it just large events? Well, uh, for that, I'd like you to turn to James 4, James chapter 4, in the New Testament, in verse 13. James 4, 13. And uh, James is talking to businessmen here. <laughs> 4.13, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so it's clear that God's absolute sovereignty extends not beyond just massive global events all the way down into the most mundane events of your life and my life. Such mundane things as going on a business trip to Dallas, for example. And in verse, uh, right there in verse 15... James says, instead, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So, if the Lord wills, I'll go to Dallas tomorrow. If the Lord doesn't will it, I will not go to Dallas tomorrow. And um, 
if the Lord wills that I would live another year, that I will live another year, but if the Lord doesn't will it, it won't happen. In other words, this verse is saying that everything that comes to pass is God's sovereign will, that he wills it. Um, so this is to say that all the way from, from marching armies across a continent to the smallest grub in the middle of Montana, buried underground, is all part of God's sovereign will, fulfilling exactly what he plans for it, whether intentionally or unintentionally, which we'll see in a little bit. And um, let, me just, let me just offer a couple more verses for you, just to, for you to consider the minuteness and the infinite detail of God's plan and his sovereignty. Uh, this is uh, Proverbs 16:9. The man, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16:33. The lot or dice is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Matthew 10, 29, which uh, Randy reminded us last week, is about sparrows. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from your father. And the, the most blanket statement of all is Ephesians 1, 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Um, so to answer our question about, about God, is he just passively act, working or is he actively working? Okay, well, he can... He can anticipate the future because he appoints the future. That's how he can, he can do that. He can observe what happens in the future because he ordains what happens in the future. And he can declare what happens in the future because he decrees everything that happens in the future. And to say that something happens that's not according to his will is to deny um, the godness of God, to, to deny that he is God. So again, bringing this back to the application that, that we want to cover is our suffering. Um, you just need to know that every single suffering, every single trial you've gone through in your life has been the sovereign will of God, that there have been no accidents. Um, he has planned and purposed for every um, trial you have gone through. Um, and he brings it about. He says, I accomplish my purpose. Now, that's not to deny secondary causes. So I want to spend just a little bit of time here looking at some of these secondary causes. And you have them in your notes. Um, here's the question. Does God allow these things, to these other agents, these causes, to rule on their own? Or does he actively govern them? And there's three kind of agents I want to talk through. Man, nature, and then Satan himself. So, so uh, we'll start with God's sovereignty over man. And uh, if you would please go back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, just an amazing passage here, Isaiah chapter 10. And we'll start in verse 5. And I just want you to see how God is working through these other secondary causes. He's accomplishing his purpose through these other secondary causes. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Again, this is God speaking. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down in the mire of the streets. Let me uh, just stop there and give you a little bit of, little bit of context here. So he's talking about Assyria, which, is a globe, which was a global superpower. And the godless nation, in verse 6, that he's sending them is none other than God's own people, Israel. Okay? So he's saying here, the rod in their hands, the staff in their hands, is actually my fury. They are the rod of my anger. It says, against the godless nation, I send them... Um, If you, if you, the other shocking part is, if, you, if let's, let's continue reading in verse 7. You see in verse 7, he says, But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few. 
And then this is what he says down in verse 11. If, if you skip down to verse 11, this is Assyria talking. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? So do you see why is Assyria, in their own opinion, why is Assyria going to Israel? They're going because that's what they want to do. They want to pillage and plunder. That's just what Assyrians do. And they have a pride in their heart of they, they want to destroy Jerusalem just like they've destroyed all these other nations. And yet, in the same act of Assyria going out of their own initiative for their own purposes, God at the same time has a parallel, much different purpose for the same action. His purpose is one of discipline for his people, for Israel. Assyria is going to plunder and kill. God is sending them for discipline. So the question is, uh, is Assyria just a robot? Are they just a puppet um, who is being manipulated by God without any responsibility? And the answer, of course, is no. You know that, that um, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go hand in hand. Neither of them uh, cancel out the other. God is sovereign, and yet man, Assyria, is still responsible here. And we see that in verse 12. If you look in verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So yes, God will, did punish the nation of Assyria. And yet, in verse 12, God calls it his work, though Assyria is carrying it out. And one more, just to, just to put the, um, the, really the, the finishing touch on this, if you go to Acts chapter 4, this is just unbelievable. Acts chapter 4, verse 17, and you've seen this before, I know you have. Uh, sorry, 427. Acts 427. These are the Christians praying to God after um, Peter has been released from prison. Peter and John have been released from prison. And they say this in 427. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Just amazing, isn't it? Look, I mean, just looking at this passage, whose plan was it for Christ to be crucified? Whose plan was it? From all eternity past, God, this was God's plan. And yet, these four characters, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, all had a hand in the crucifixion of Christ. And they were not innocent, though they were just carrying out unintentionally God's sovereign plan. Um, well, I, we need to move on. So let, let's go to nature. Um, nature has been given a lot of power recently thanks to the coronavirus um, and, and, uh, and wrongfully so uh, nature is often seen to be at odds with God's plan or, or almost uncontrollable by God or maybe he just kind of allows it to work and then he intervenes occasionally to overrule it uh, listen to this quote uh, back in March when everything happened um, there was a prominent religious leader in Dallas and he made this statement, quote, This coronavirus is not an act of God. This is an act of nature. God does not desire that people get sick, suffer, and die. Okay, and that quote is just pretty typical of, of how most people think about nature, that it's almost like God and nature are kind of competing, and nature is doing things that God doesn't want it to do. And sometimes he overrules it. He may calm the storm every now and then. Uh, but for the most part, it's working uh, without his control. Um, I, but we just have to ask, what does Scripture say about that? Um, if, you, if, you, if you look at Job chapter 37, just, just maybe just write this down. But Job chapter 37 it's clear that God is the one who sends disaster and he sends um, tornadoes, hurricanes, snowstorms, hailstorms. God is the one who is actively sending these things. 
And we have examples throughout the Old Testament of God sending things like pestilence, floods, um, diseases. So we know from Scripture that God, um, though he does not delight in the death of the wicked, we know that's true. To say that God does not desire people to get suffer, sick, and die um, requires a little bit of, of definition work. Um, because to say that God is not getting something that he desires is to say that God can't control, is not in control, in other words. And just look at the, just look at the mortality fact, the mortality rate. God, if God did not desire people to die, then here's the question, why do people die? Why does God have a 100% failure rate through the whole course of history? Every single person has died. If God did not desire people to die, then people would not die. That's the sovereign will of God, okay? Um, and so you just need to look at, I'm sorry, we don't, <laughs> don't have time. We need to, you need to look at Job 37. Uh, but I want to move on to a different part of nature. Usually when we talk about nature, we think of storms. But there's another part of nature that affects you and I more, which is things like uh, uh, infertility, uh, miscarriage, diseases, things that you and I suffer with every single day that most of us, most of us in this room probably haven't suffered from uh, the effects of a tornado, though, though some of you may. Um, but more, I want to look at this other nature, which is more just called physical affliction. Those are really the kind of the two types of nature. There's, there's uh, natural disasters, and then there are physical affliction. And so for that, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 4, and as you're turning there, you remember, this is Moses talking to God in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 4. And, um, and here God is telling Moses that I'm gonna, I want you to go and be this, my spokesman, talk to Pharaoh, and bring my people out of Egypt. And do you remember how he responds? He responds with four buts. But, 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 but. I can't go, I can't go, I can't go for these four reasons. And it's the third but I want us to look at. It's in uh, Exodus 4.16, and Moses says to the Lord, or sorry, I'm sorry, 4.10, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Just amazing. Why does God list off these uh, disabilities to Moses? Moses had none of them. Moses was not blind. He was not deaf. He was not mute. Why did he list those? Well, it's as if God was saying... Yes, Moses, you are slow of speech, and you are not eloquent, um, but not only have I made you that way, I have even made the people who are born blind and mute and deaf. And so not only, Moses, have I made you exactly the way I want you to be made, I have made people who have been born blind exactly like that, the way I want them to be made. And just the application of this for you and me is, is incredible, um, that no matter what sort of physical ailment or a disease you're suffering from, uh, you just need to know that God has created your body that way for a reason. And the reason we'll, we'll get to will we'll primarily be next week. But, um, but you just need to know that God has created you that way. And again, it's not to say, it's not to deny secondary causes like sin. Of course, all of this is the result of sin, is it not? That um, in heaven, there will be no blindness, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no pain in heaven. And yet God has ordained in his sovereign plan the creation of, uh, of us with all of our infirmities and disabilities. Uh, finally, I want to look at uh, God's sovereignty over Satan and this is just the most astounding of everything we've looked at so far. 
so what about Satan? You know, Satan is often seen as God's, you know, arch nemesis, that they're playing chess match against each other, and, and they're equal but opposites, forces of good and evil. Um, but what does the Bible say about God's sovereignty over Satan? So uh, would you turn to Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1, it's right before the book of Psalms. Job chapter 1. I'm going to get some water while you all are turning there. Job chapter 1. And you remember the story here that in verse 6, um, Satan presents himself to God in heaven for some reason. And, and then God says to him... Um, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you, have you taken notice of him? Uh, verse 8, there is none like him on all the earth, that he is uh, blameless, he's an upright man, he fears me, and he turns away from evil. Uh, so, so God presents to Job kind of his trophy uh, servant, his trophy child. And you remember Satan responds by saying, uh, does he, not, does he not worship you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him? Have you not blessed him beyond measure? And God had. God had. There's no doubt about that. But Satan says, uh, you take everything away from him, and he won't, he won't bless you anymore. He'll curse you. And um, if you look in verse 11, Satan is saying to God, God, you stretch out your hand and touch all he has. And God responds in verse 12 and says, uh, actually, you stretch out your hand, only don't harm him. And you remember verse 13 and 14 and 15, just the unimaginable suffering that Job went through. Um, Sabaeans came, and uh, the Sabaeans took his oxen and his donkeys. There was a fire from heaven in verse 16 and burned up all his sheep. Uh, verse 17, Chaldeans came, another group, and and took all of his camels and struck down his servants. And just worst of all, in verse 18, all ten of Job's children were in his oldest son's house, and there was a wind that came and destroyed the house and killed all ten of his children, all ten of them. And in rapid succession, all of these servants come and tell Job, one after the other, what had happened. And Job... Um, loses, lost absolutely everything. We're meant to feel, as we read this, we're meant to feel this is the height of suffering. I have not experienced anything like this. This is the most suffering I've, that can be imaginable. Um, and I have, a, I have a very, very simple question for you to, con to consider. Very simple question. Here's the question. Who caused Job's suffering? Very simple question uh, that has a complex answer, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the answer wasn't complex for Job, as we'll see in just a second, but it is a little bit of a complex answer. Um, I'm reading out of my ESV Bible, and if you look, maybe you should check your Bible too. Above thir verse 13, there's a heading, and uh, my, my heading says, Satan takes Job's property and children. And I read that. I said, well, how can, how can the ESV translators get away with saying that? Satan's name is not mentioned anywhere in, verse in any of these calamities. Satan's name is not mentioned as, as taking away Job's children and property. Uh, the four, people who, four agents who are mentioned are Sabaeans, Chaldeans, fire, and wind. So are the ESV translators wrong when they say that Satan took these things? Um, and the answer is no, okay? No, I'm not going to say that they're wrong. Uh, Satan himself, here we see, is using secondary means uh, himself to carry out this plan that God had allowed him in verse, 13, verse 12. Satan allowed him to go and afflict Job. And so Satan carried out his um, devilish plot through these secondary means. Um, but the question is, We've got Satan, we've got these secondary means, but do we need to look higher than even Satan? And uh, to that, we need to read uh, verse 21. Uh, well, first, just 20, just verse 20, just so you can see the pain and the anguish that Job felt. 
Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Why would he worship? Verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave, and Satan has taken away. The Lord gave, and Chaldeans have taken away. No, he responds by saying, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. It's just amazing, isn't it? He, he knew nothing about this heavenly debate that happened between Satan and God, and yet he responds by saying, the Lord has done this, even though all he could see with his eyes are Chaldeans, Sabaeans, fire, and, and wind. So here's the question. Is he right? Was he right? Was the Lord responsible primarily for taking away everything he had? All we need to do is just keep reading. Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay, that's the inspired author of this book. And in case we miss it, the pattern continued to get repeated again in chapter 2, where uh, again Satan and God square off, and, and God sa- Satan says, well, let me afflict him. And, um, and this time Satan doesn't use secondary means. Perhaps he's frustrated and he just wants to get the job done himself rather than using any of his henchmen. So he afflicts Job uh, himself in verse 7. Do you see that? This is the first time where Satan is actually directly said to have afflicted Job. Verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So who, uh, who afflicted Job this time with sores? It's clear Satan did, right? Isn't that clear? Look down in verse 10. After Job's wife comes and says, curse God and die, verse 10, Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and shall we not receive evil? Again, Job will not let go of the, the fact that the primary cause of his suffering was God. And we have to ask again, was he right? Well, look again, just... <laughs> Read the next verse. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Yet again, Job did not stop at the secondary causes of people and nature and Satan, but yet he went straight to the top and attributed his suffering to God himself. And just one more. At the very end of the book, the very end of Job, Job chapter 42, here again, just in case we miss it, this is the, the inspired author, the inerrant author of the book of Job. He says at the very end in chapter 42, verse 11, that all of Job's family, they came to him, his brothers, his sisters, they came, they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him. For what? For all of the evil that the Lord had brought upon Job. Um, just amazing, isn't it? Can I, can I ask you a question? I just want you to think about the most suffering, the most intense suffering you have ever gone through. And I know, I know, um, Jesse and I have been here for six years. I know that even in the last six years, some of you have gone through the most intense suffering. Um, who caused your suffering? What would you say? Was it a, 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 a diagnosis, a, an accident? Um, a sinful choice of yours, if, if that's what you attribute the cause of your suffering to, um, your eyes are too low. Um, Job would tell us that you need to look higher and see God's hand behind the most difficult circumstance you've ever faced. Um, If you turn your hand out over, I just want to, I'm just going to read these very quickly because these, are, these verses are not often quoted. So <laughs> uh, there's really no other time other than now that we would read verses like this. So I, want, I just want to bring these to you just in rapid succession. I'm just going to read all these. And I just want them to settle on you and um, hear them. So starting in Deuteronomy 32:39. 39. 
See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Job, 30, Job 23, 13, but God is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Does God get what he desires? Whatever he desires, he does. Psalm 135, 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in all seas and all deeps. Ecclesiastes 7, 13, 14. Consider the work of the Lord. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3, 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say back to, say to him, what have you done? Amos 3.6, is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has done it? Ephesians 1.11, I already quoted for you. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, if, you, if, you, if, if you are pushing back on some of these verses, I would just um, ask you to, to consider these verses here. Just amazing. The sovereignty of God, that his sovereign will is what is accomplished, even in the most intense suffering. Um, So that's the first question. Is God sovereign even over our suffering? And the answer, I think, is clear from Scripture that yes, he is. Now the second question is, what comfort does that bring for us? Um, What does it matter if if, if if my child is taken by God or if my child is if God is not ultimately responsible, at the end of the day, my child has been taken from me. So what is the, what is the comfort in God's sovereignty? Um, let me just give you a little example. This is where Naomi from the book of Ruth, this is where she was stuck. Okay? Naomi understood the sovereignty of God, but she was missing another piece that she, that she had forgotten about. You remember Naomi? Um, she had lost her husband. Her husband had died. Her two sons had died. Um, again, just unimaginable suffering. And she comes back to Bethlehem, uh, and the women say, is that, is that Naomi? Um, I can't recognize her. Is that Naomi? You remember what she says? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, for the Lord has dealt bitterly to me. I went away full, and he brought me back empty. Uh, he has testified against me. And uh, he has brought calamity upon me. Okay, so that's where Naomi was at. So she knew, did she understand the sovereignty of God? Yes, she did. She understood that whatever had caused the death of her, father, her husband and her two sons uh, was ultimately caused or, or ordained by God. Okay, so she placed the ultimate responsibility on God uh, as Job did. But what she had forgotten is the second point on your handout, which is the goodness of God towards his children, okay? That God's sovereignty is fatherly towards his children. That's what she had forgotten. Um, Last week, uh, Brother Randy gave us, uh, he introduced us to one of the sweetest doctrines, the doctrine of God's providence. Do you remember that from from his lesson last week? even if you don't know the definition of the word, just the word providence is, is just such a sweet word, isn't it? 
Well, the doctrine of God's providence, he gave us a definition from the, uh, the, the uh, Westminster Confession. If you look at the bottom of your handout, I've given you the definition from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27 there. I've provided it for you just so you can remember it. It says, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So that, all of that it was the first point, but here's the second point. The next question of the catechism, so helpful, question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and his providence help us? Again, what, why? What does it matter if God is sovereign or not? Listen to this. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence that our faithful God and Father, uh, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Just an amazing comfort, isn't that? Um, you know, Spurgeon has said that when we're going through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the soft pillow that we lay our head on at, at the end of the night. Um, so where is this in our Bible? Uh, again, Randy introduced us to two scriptures that really can't be improved on from last week. Uh, Genesis fifty twenty. if you remember Joseph, at the end of all of his suffering and then exaltation when he becomes prime minister of Egypt, he says, he's talking to his brothers, he said, this evil that you meant, you meant this evil for, uh, sorry, uh, let me read it here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You need to notice the words that Joseph uses. God didn't turn the evil for good. Okay? He didn't work the evil for good. He meant the evil for good. So again, in the planning process, okay, the, uh, the brothers meant this action for evil. At the same time, God meant it for Joseph's good. And the most wonderful of all is Romans 8.28. Really, nothing, nothing can surpass this verse in terms of the preciousness um, displaying the goodness of God in our suffering. Romans 8.28, you know it so well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, all things. We don't need to be reminded that good things work together for our good, do we? We need to be reminded that the bad things, the suffering, the pain, the crying, the tears, that works for our good. Uh, the NASB, uh, NASV, you can see it. Is it B or V? It's B. B. <laughs> Said that God causes all things to work together for good. The ESV is slightly different. Um. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we can have that debate later. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, this verse inside Romans eight twenty eight. There is unimaginable patience and peace that is ministered to us. And if we forget Romans 8, 28, um, we would be like Naomi. We would be in despair. We would be um, doubting God's goodness. But if we understand by faith that God works all things for good, um, we can have patience and peace even in the most difficult circumstance. And what is the good, just one note, what is the good that God is accomplishing? Well, it's not primarily material. Um, he doesn't destroy your barn for, with a tornado so that you can build a bigger barn. Uh, and the good that comes out of that is now I have a bigger barn because of this tornado. Um, though that may happen, it happened for Job, didn't it? At the end, Job was given twice as much as he had before. But primarily, the primary good that God is working in our life is spiritual. And we, and we know that from Romans 8.29. Um, we know that from Romans 8.29. I'm sorry. 
you can quote it, but I've momentarily forgotten it, um, so I need to cheat here. Um, because at the end of Romans 8.29, he does these things in order that we may be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay? That is, in all of our trial and affliction and blessing, all of it, God is chiseling you into the image of his Son. And that is the good that ultimately he is causing. Um, so what about Naomi? Um, back to Naomi. If she had only remembered, if she had, if she had been reminded, gently reminded, um, very gently reminded in the midst of her unimaginable pain that God was working this for her good, she may, she may have been um, a little bit more patient and trusting. All she had to wait was just three chapters in the book of Ruth to begin to see some of the good that God was unfolding through the death of her family. Um, but ultimately, even if she had patiently waited, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't until a thousand years after Naomi died that it was, it was shown that Christ came through the line of Ruth's child. And so you just need to know that um, as you patiently wait through your trial, uh, trusting God's goodness and his, um, trusting God's goodness in your trial that you may not see in this life, you may not see the good that he is working through your suffering. Um, I, again, Randy quoted this song, a wonderful song from uh, last week, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Listen to this stanza. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. So um, your, your mind, your, my emotions, what's going on? Judge him not, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the goodness of God is what we need to remember. The goodness and the sovereignty of God is what we need to remember in our suffering. Uh, so um, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about, well, what is the good? What are some of the very specific good things that God is purposing for our uh, affliction? And uh, so please come back in a couple weeks. We'll talk about that. Um, before I end, if you see the bottom of your handout, I just put some references there just for you to take a peek at. If this is a brand new topic for you, um, you have to read the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Uh, it really can't be surpassed in how easily readable it is. And he, he does what we did today. He goes through Scripture and shows from Scripture how God is sovereign. Uh, if you are familiar with this um, doctrine, I would recommend uh, A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. It's a challenging book if, you've been, if you're familiar with this topic. Uh, if you like to listen rather than to read, John Piper's got uh, 10 hours of lectures on the, the doctrine of providence that you can enjoy. And uh, just one more thing. Um, I brought this little booklet. This little book, it's called Behind a Frowning Providence uh, by that, uh, that great Presbyterian theologian John Murray. Um, it's just a little tiny book, booklet that condenses everything we'll talk about over the next three weeks. And I brought about 10 copies, and I brought them to give away. So if you were even the slightest bit interested in this book, or if it may be a help to you or someone you know who is suffering, uh, come, come up here afterwards and, and, uh, and grab one. Well, let's pray. Father, we do um, thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness in your sovereignty. And Father, we know that if... Um, you hadn't revealed this truth to us in your word that we would not know it, that we would be lost in our despair and our suffering uh, and, and not seeing the goodness of your hand in it. So, Father, would you give us um, a greater trust in your goodness and your sovereignty? And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.